What if we could apply the concept of least privilege to private data? Each application would get only the private information that it needs to do its job, and all of that data could be kept securely in a central location. That's what this episode's about. You could restore it all and rescue me from Hi, and welcome to Backup Central's Restored All podcast. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup, and I have with me a guy that was, frankly, completely worthless today when I needed him, Prasanna Maliandi. How's, how's it going, Prasanna? You let me down. You know, it's hard to bat a thousand <laughs> all the time, you know? There are yeah. going to be things that I just don't know about, and I don't have the YouTube knowledge, right? <laughs> Apparently, the the iTunes search API... Is one that you you didn't uh, you didn't watch any YouTube channels on how to use the iTunes search API? Nope. But I so, did try to help and ask very basic questions, which you had already tried. So yeah, there is Although, that. So I wasn't completely you, useless. You you want to know a little bit of news? What? I figured it out. Oh, nice. I figured it out after banging my head against the wall. First, after ignoring it, like why can't I do this? Why can't for some reason, the Apple Podcasts sort of whatever you want to call that service ecosystem, yeah, yeah, it doesn't provide an RSS feed for your podcast. I like to do automation. I like to make sure that when a new episode gets gets you know published, wait, you automate it. You don't do that personally each time, yeah, no, and no, I do not. <laughs> I like to do that, and I was never able to do that for for Apple, for the Apple version of the podcast, which for the record is what most of people listen to us on. Right. And so I, I had this way where like I had a spreadsheet that I could put the, the title and the URL, the, the Apple URL and the image for the podcast in that spreadsheet. And then it would begin the automation process, but I could never figure out how to just get that information out of Apple automatically and I, I finally, I don't know why I didn't do this before. I finally submitted a help desk ticket to Zapier, which is my big automation platform. And they pushed me in the right direction, but they pushed me towards the iTunes uh, search API, mm. which for the record is about as friendly as, I don't, you know, <laughs> you know, imagine your current political party and then my, and then meeting someone from the opposite political party and then <laughs> asking them questions. It's about that friendly. Uh, and, and it was missing. Um, it's, it's just not, the documentation is just not made to, to do what I wanted yeah. to do. And so I did, so I was banging my head against the wall and then I found thanks to uh, stack overflow. Uh, I found an undocumented search parameter so yeah. what I was able to finally search for and find my podcast on the search API, but all I was getting was the listing for my podcast, not for the episodes. And so then um, there was this uh, undocumented search parameter that I put and it changed the output format, which of course is in mm. um, uh, JSON format, JSON. Uh, but it, cha yeah. it changed it, it. It changed it to be a list of the 50 most recent episodes rather than just the description of the podcast. Yeah. 
And I think I've managed to figure out how to extract the Can data I, from it. I, I have a question for you. Yeah. Is there a reason you didn't just use chat GPT and ask it? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I'm just if saying. I go, if I go do that and I ask chat GPT, chat GPT, how do I do this? And it spits out an answer. I'm going to just, I'm going <laughs> to chew nails or something if that, if that happens. Write, write me, you know, go to chat GPT and say, write me, uh, you know, a, a, an iTunes query to find the most recent episodes of my show. And if it spits out my URL that I spent many hours creating, I will indeed be pissed off. Pissed off. Why? Because because you didn't say that. This is why this is all your fault. This is why we're talking about this. You didn't say that a few hours ago. You didn't say, hey, did you throw it up to ChatGPT? And I, because I would have, and maybe the results would have been different. And maybe yeah. I would still, you know, there'd be no blood coming out of my, <laughs> my forehead. Anyway, but, but hey, it's, it lo it's looking good, but I won't actually know if it worked for sure until I publish until my next, next episode and magic happens, yep. right? Uh, so yep. we shall see what we shall see. Mm -hmm. So actually, now I'm in the process of creating a test podcast. Um, where I can just publish, publish, publish so that I can test yeah. the, the thing. Um, but I'm excited, excited. Yay. Um, yeah. So, um, well, I, I, I want to bring on our guest today. He calls himself an engineer that can tell stories. That's something he and I have in common, which is how he ended up as the head of marketing at Skyflow, a privacy as a service company. He's been in the industry for over 20 years and is the host of the Partially Redacted podcast, where he and I met the first time. Welcome to the podcast, Sean Falconer. Thanks. Uh, it's great to be here. I wish I had a, a cool nickname like Mr. Backup. Uh, I got to work on that. But uh, uh, I guess an engineer that tells stories is a little bit of a long-winded uh, um, nickname, but I'll, I'll, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like you as well, where basically I, I am a techie person at heart, mm -hmm. but I also, I, t but I'm a techie person with a business degree, right? I don't, I didn't get a technical degree. Uh, I got a business degree and even gave up on my, uh, I was going to get a minor in information uh, science. And the minor at the college that I was at, the classes were so lame, I just couldn't take it. I was just, <laughs> I ended up in arguments with the, um, with the professors because the professors were all like, I think the term is adjunct professors, right? Mm -hmm. they, they, they had like right. a day job and then they came in, but they weren't like the head of IT at such and such. They were like, the guy was like an accountant. One of them was an accountant <laughs> and he's teaching an IS class. And so I even gave up on having a, a minor, um, but I think that helps me, right? Just, you know, the ability to understand the business side, just like with you, this is all about telling stories because honestly, so many people are in the industry and they can't, you ask them, you know, why, why are you doing what you're doing? Right. Tell me, tell me why does your company exist? And, and, you know, and, and how is it different than the competitor? If you can't do that, I think you're at a, a, a big disadvantage. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I went sort of the opposite direction where I, I did multiple technical degrees, but then I learned, I think the business side of things by starting a company. And I had to learn it because basically I had no choice, but to learn it, you know, <laughs> no, nothing creates a sense of urgency, like a lack of resources and uh, a lack of skills for, for that matter. I had to figure it out or we were going to die as a business. So that's kind of where I learned, you know, the business old... modeling, 
marketing, sales, and all that type of stuff. Makes you better, well-rounded. Yeah. Agreed, Persona. Agreed. I like that. So I, I was just thinking about sort of the engineer who tells stories. I was like, is there such a term as like techie storyteller? Uh, sure. Why not? We can make it up. I, we, yeah. We need a we need a French uh, a term for technical because like mm-hmm. raconteur extraordinaire, right? <laughs> so we can have like raconteur technical, <laughs> whatever, whatever the French word is for. Yeah. for it's he's, probably he's, something that sounds like that. What's yeah, that? Should be in French or Latin. Yeah, uh, we're, yeah, we're absolutely. Right choices. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I'm super excited to have you on, Sean, because you work in a space that I love and I'm so involved in, right? And that's all about privacy. So it's always nice to sort of step away from backup, even though my first love was backup and data protection, and start talking to someone about privacy. And I know, Curtis, we've had so many other folks and we've talked so many times on the podcast about privacy and the importance of privacy. But Sean, I want to get your take on sort of like, where do you see the importance of privacy these days and sort of how it's come up and become more mainstream than, say, what it was thought of, say, 10, 15 years ago? Yeah, I think there's a there's a bunch of kind of shifts that I think we're seeing in the industry right now. And they've come, there's probably, you know, different reasons why that has happened. But there's, I think, like 20 years ago or even maybe a shorter time when, when sort of social networks were really growing in the early days of Facebook, there was this belief that like privacy is dead. I can remember being in graduate school and like no one cared about what they were putting online. It's just like, everything's going to be online except for like basically the computer science graduate students that I was like working with. It's like, this is crazy. Like, why are people doing this? And, but the only people who were really upset about that at that time were I think these like sort of deep, like tech people that realized like you're putting a lot of stuff online that, now everybody has access to you're posting all the bad stuff. Yeah, that exactly. Happen. You're posting where you're going to people know that you're not in your house, all this type of stuff. And I think as a consumer, it was also new, brand new, you know, my parents were going on these platforms for the first time before that, you know, internet was mostly just, you know, looking up information or doing an email for them that they didn't really understand what they were giving up. And they also, I think your relationship with a lot of those businesses as a consumer is complicated. Like when you purchase something online, you understand what your business relationship is and how they make money off of you. But when you post things to social networks and so forth, it's a lot more nuanced and complicated to understand how they're making money off of you. And I think that, so people were kind of blind to that for a long time. And there was a a long history, I think, of abusing essentially customer data. And then with sort of the creation of GDPR, big fines that were issued to Facebook, the the fact that there's a major data breach by a major corporation now on a weekly basis, that has, I think, the market as a consumer, people are more aware and educated about this problem. And I think more conscious as well of what they're putting online. And then on top of that, you also have more regulations that are coming in. So you have sort of multiple pressures for a company to do better, to understand that they, they, that they can't essentially live in the old times of just doing whatever they wanted with data and not questioning, like, why are we collecting this? Where are we putting it? Like why, you know, they weren't really asking those questions. Now there's a lot of people asking them those questions, both from regulatory standpoint and consumers. And that has created this shift. And then the other factor, the last thing I'll say here um, is that there's also companies that are ahead of the curve with this. And they're now using, I think, privacy and security as a differentiator 
-hmm. companies like Apple do this really well. And that then becomes essentially marketing momentum for them. So it's like, if you're a company that's kind of living in the old world of essentially data abuse and you don't jump on this new train of um, essentially prioritizing privacy and making it a core part of your product offering, I think you're going to be left behind and essentially eventually consumers are just not going to trust you with their data and you're going to lose out in the long run. As you were talking about social media and, and, and posting pictures and whatnot, I, I immediately reflected on a story that I saw just uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it was, um, at first, it did not seem to be about this. And it was why Emma Watson doesn't do selfies, right? And what it came down to was privacy. Um, that the, pro the like she'll do autographs and she'll do things like that. But what happens when you take a selfie with her, that is immediately, you know, there's geographic information that's in that that post that it immediately gets up and then suddenly she's being followed by thousands of people as she goes around the city. Um, I, I think that some parts of the new generation are starting to understand what happens when you completely disregard privacy. Uh, it's just a, it just came to me. And by the way, speaking of regulations, I am wondering if we might finally get some movement in U.S. regulation regarding privacy after today's breach. Uh, are you guys aware of the big breach that happened today? Anyone? I am not. Anyone? No, I'm not. I'm usually on top of this, so I feel <laughs> I feel embarrassed. That I don't know, but I, I blame I'll, my meeting schedule. So I'll give you I'll give you a hint. It's Congress. Oh, so no. apparently, oh. the medical provider for most of Congress had a breach, and so everybody's personal information was not just like, it's a, it's the worst kind, meaning right. not just not that the information was accessed, but that it was literally harvested and is now for sale on the dark web. Um, so maybe, you know? Yeah. That, that's also one of those things where it's like, okay, I'm sure there's some things that Congress people may not want out there. And can you now hold it against them and get them to vote a certain way or do other actions and all the rest? It's a dangerous time we live in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think regardless of the data that gets leaked in any of these breaches as well, like even if it's information that's technically publicly available, it doesn't feel good as a consumer. Like T-Mobile had a data breach recently. And I read like their press release because it, you know, when you have one of these breaches of a certain size, you have to essentially publicly announce and you also have to let all of the consumers that were impacted by it know about it. But, you know, they've used a lot of language around um, that the, you know, the information wasn't super, super sensitive. It's information that you can gather. It still doesn't feel good, like because essentially it's like somebody compromised their systems to get access to this information. So it says something about, you know, where they are from a privacy and security perspective. Um, and sure, it's worse if it's your social security number or your medical health records, but I also don't really want my you know bulk email address, phone number, like you know, information about my children also being avail readily available to anybody. So yeah. And even in that sense, Sean, one of the things I worry about is I get that they've done their investigations and they're making their best guess as to what has been accessed. But sometimes these ransomware gangs are very smart, right? Or the bad actors, right? And sometimes you can't even figure out what they've done, right? And so how accurate is it to say that, yes, as a company, this is exactly and only this 
set of data was harvested, right? And not all this other data, because sometimes it's hard to be definitive, right? And know that, yeah, that's the only thing that was accessed. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of times too, companies don't really, they don't even actually find out that a breach had happened from, you know, months uh, later because they don't have the proper like logging and auditing systems put in place. Uh, so they don't necessarily even have visibility into like a log file that got compromised six months ago that then led to some other uh, access level of access. And maybe they, you know, I know Curtis and I, when we talked on our podcast, talked about, you know, people going after the backups, deleting those, and then essentially going after the main system. So like, there's all these, you know, I uh, think this like cascading effect that can happen from one of those breaches. And a lot of times companies just aren't like, they just don't know proactively. They find out reactively and then they're trying to deal with it six months later and track down like what actually happened. Yeah, there were, there were a couple of breaches that were notified in the last month where the story was almost identical, where they said that, that the, the bad actor had been in their environment for, in one case, two years, in another case, three years. If somebody's been in your environment for three years, you have zero, like, even if you've got logs, unless you've got logs going back three years and you're willing to comb through them, you're not going to have any idea what kind of stuff that they, what they stole. Yeah. At three years, you might as well like put that person on payroll at that point. I mean, like, that's a long time to have someone have access. I mean, people in the tech industry don't even stay in a company for more than two years at this point, let alone three years of just like hanging out in someone else's system. Yeah. Curtis, do you want to throw out our disclaimer before? Yeah, we... I was just thinking the same thing. So uh, uh, before I forget to do it, uh, I'll throw out our usual disclaimer. Uh, Persona and I work for different companies. He works for Zoom. I work for Druva. And uh, this is not a podcast of either company. It's our own words and own thoughts and own opinions. And uh, so if you'd uh, like to join the conversation Reach out to me at W Curtis Preston on uh, Gmail or at WC Preston on Twitter or LinkedIn.com slash IN slash Mr. Backup, and you'll find me there. And finally, also, please rate us at uh, um, your favorite podcatcher if you're listening to us on Apple Tunes. Apple Tunes? Apple Tunes, yeah. <laughs> uh, just, just scroll down to the bottom where you can put in the stars and give us comments. We love comments. And uh, so there you go. Back to the podcast. Um, so the, um, I guess for, for me, having been sort of in the industry for a while where I started seeing the privacy, the, the, the attitude change toward privacy is when they started talking about it going to G GDPR, right? That we really didn't talk about it. We talked about it mainly in terms of what we call in the, in, the, in America, PII, Right. We just didn't want our name, birth date and, and um, a social security social number security. out there. Um, and but no one was really thinking about personal information to the to the degree that they did with the GDPR uh, and other uh, regulations. We finally were, we're getting a a mirror of that somewhat with the CCPA in um, in California. Although Persona, and maybe you want to talk about this, Persona, um, he's recently discovered sort of how toothless that particular piece of legislation is. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah. No, it's uh, interesting. So even before I started working here, I used to get, I hate being on people's like email lists and I'm very sensitive about my cell phone number, not giving it out for work purposes. 
I remember once getting a cold call from a vendor being like, hey, by the way, so-and-so, I see you work for this company. And hey, do you want to get on a call and go for lunch or whatever else? I'm like, I've never interacted with these people. I have no idea. So I was like, I live in California. I want to see what these privacy regulations can actually do. Submitted a CCPA request to the company. No response. uh, Emailed them two or three times. Nothing. I was like, just tell me what data you have about me. Finally, I ended up digging through a bunch of things and found out that you can go to the office of the attorney general, file a complaint. They'll send a harshly worded letter to the company. And then the company has a certain number of days to respond. Then you get the reply back. And they're like, hey, here's all your information. We deleted everything. Okay, everything's good to go. But then I was like, hey, what happens if they don't actually respond? And according to the CCPA, there's nothing they can do. They can't find them. Right. The only thing that can be done is if there was a breach, then you as an individual can sue. Otherwise, you have no rights. Now, since then, right, this was probably back in 2019, 2020, right? You now have CPRA, which is sort of the next level, right, where they're now starting to give teeth to the California agencies to actually go and sort of provide uh, or penalize right these companies for not responding so it's different than like the gdpr in the eu right where there is more of the ability to find people but as an individual in california you don't have many rights at the same time i'm glad at least in california we have the ccpa and cpra because some states don't even have that right and they're just kind of screwed (laughs) yeah there are more uh state laws popping up and i I think one of the challenges that we're gonna have in the us and 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 as it like makes it really hard to navigate as a business we're probably gonna end up with like 50 different (laughs) independent privacy regulations is is kind of the nature of the of the country um but yeah i mean i think i think you speak to a, a, a good point there about the a lot of these rules and regulations from like a company standpoint the, there are people who are, you know, they're willing to essentially just like roll the dice of like, maybe we'll be fine. Uh, even when it comes to GDPR, I think because there's only so much bandwidth to go after companies, a lot of times they, even with GDPR, they're going to go after like the big fish companies, like, you know, the Facebook violations where they can have billion dollar fines and so forth. So as a smaller company, you could, you know, uh, essentially roll the dice there and hope that you don't get caught in some capacity. Um, but th- I think that is going to change more and more over time. They are there is sort of more teeth behind a lot of these regulations. Australia now is uh, introducing much heavier right. fines as well. So it's like not only from like a data protection standpoint, if you have a breach, you're you're going to make headlines. It looks bad for business. You lose trust. But then I think that there there is now more and more uh, likelihood that you could suffer a fine. Um, as a company, and it could really be detrimental depending on the stage of your company, like uh, depending on what the violation is as well. Uh, now, I think CPRA, there's clear fines around not deleting someone's data, and it's on a per uh, uh, user basis. So those things, you know, really start to add up. And deletion of, I mean, you guys know you're in backups. Deletion of data is very, very hard uh, to do right. Most companies don't do it well. Uh, you know, we've talked to companies um, that. Uh, it costs them anywhere from ten to fifteen thousand dollars per deletion request because their data is essentially everywhere, and they have to go pay an engineer to track down all those locations and and delete delete it. And even then, I would be willing to to guess that they probably don't necessarily get every single location because yeah. deleting data. They try. Yeah, they yeah. try. You know, I talked to um, a, a company recently. They have eight thousand databases all over the world, like 
8,000 databases, and that's our core databases, not to mention like the hidden data sources. There are going to be log files, um, back, all the backups, whatever they're using for analytics stores and so forth. That's a lot of places to potentially have to delete information. Um, so like these types of, that also is why like data security is so challenging for these companies, but that, that, that's going to make it really hard to know whether you're, you're compliant and then whether you're actually enforcing, even if you're trying to do the right thing, you might still screw it up because uh, these systems are so complicated. When you, when you take a focus, I think, of saying, we may have 800 databases, but um, we're only going to allow personal information to be put in these, whatever, whatever it is, right? Or you have one database that stores, so for Drew with that would be Salesforce, right? This is your record, your, what, what's the term, uh, record of authority? Um, single source of truth. Yeah, single source of truth. Yeah, um, and that way it's like it's only there, which means if we need to delete it, it's we only need to delete it from yeah. there. Well, um, well, and I think going but, one step further, Curtis, before even the single source of truth, I think a lot of companies should be asking the question: Do I even need that data? Right? There are so many companies who collect data just in case they might need it in the future, or an engineer is like, yeah, maybe in this one tiny case, which I can't really articulate right now, but it might be useful for me. So I'm going to keep this piece of personal information, which might be like an IP address or something else. And so even collecting that, you have to go back and ask a question, what's the value of keeping that data? What's the purpose? Why do I need this data? If I have a legitimate reason for keeping the data, sure. Let's go keep it. But I think a lot of companies can just go through and start pruning data that they shouldn't even be collecting in the first place. Yeah. And I think yeah. now that you actually, with a lot of the rules and regulations, you have to state up front, uh, you know, in your terms of services and your, in your, in your you know, policies that like, why are you collecting particular information? And people can request with data subject requests, like what are you collecting and why and so forth. But that is historically a really hard problem for companies. And I think people have always erred on the side of like more data is better. So like, why not just collect it while we can? Uh, I think the other thing too, is that we've kind of, as engineers, we've convinced ourselves sometimes that we need data to answer certain questions when we don't actually need the raw data to answer those questions. Like you don't actually, there's all the kinds of advanced, uh, uh, you know, privacy enhancing technologies and encryption methods like zero knowledge proofs and so forth that allow you to actually answer questions without seeing the underlying data. So even if you're storing it, you can you don't necessarily need to access it to do assertions on that data. So it's yeah. kind of like we need to shift the way that we think. It's just like, you know, there there was a time when lots of engineers had full SSH access to production servers. And they'd be able to convince themselves, like, we need that. And it's like, well, why do you need that? And it's like, well, that's where the log files are so that I know what's going on. And it's like, well, they don't actually, the problem is they, they don't need access to the production service. They need access to log files. So it's easy. That's a problem you can solve without giving root level access to your servers. So it's really kind of, I think, digging into the details of what is the problem that you're actually trying to solve? And then can you solve that without, in the in the case of like, you know, uh, privacy, can you solve that without actually accessing the information? Or the other thing around that is, do you even need the fine resolution? For instance, do you need an entire IP address or is right. just the first three octets enough? Do you need the full GPS uh, definition or can you just take a subset, right? And drop some values. And so I think there are things you could do so it's not as fine grained that help protect you from a privacy perspective, right? Because hey, now I don't know the exact location of a person, but I'm in the same city, which is good enough for what I need or in the same neighborhood. 
Absolutely. And like, I think that's a lot of times when it comes to analytics, you don't really need the sort of fine grained detail of being able to pinpoint an individual. You need more of the aggregate uh, that you're thinking about, or even in like other use cases, like, you know, you mentioned lead generation and, and, you know, marketing use cases, a marketing person, or you're doing a marketing automation, you don't need the, the date of birth of an individual because you don't need to know how old they are, but you might need to, you might want their day and, and, and months so that you can send them a birthday announcement or something like that. So there's ways of handling a lot of these problems. And this is a lot of essentially the type of thinking that Skyflow has done up front, which is, uh, and, and you get essentially out of the box by, by utilizing a system like ours. Yeah. So, um, I, I so I want to say two things. One is when you were talking about like engineers with SSH access to everywhere, uh, that's a problem that you need to solve for two reasons. One, privacy related, the other being ransomware related, right? Because if if everybody has root level SSH access to everywhere, you have a giant blast radius, right? Um, you know, and so one one account gets compromised and your whole environment is toast, right? That that's the other reason you need to to fix that. You you, you need to enact that concept of least privilege everywhere you can. Um, the, the second is I, I do want to talk about Skyflow and I, I want to start with, you know, how, what was the initial impetus? Uh, you know, how did you get the idea to, to start privacy as a service is a, is, is not a phrase I've heard very much. Yeah. So the originally, um, it really came from our, our founder, our CEO and founder, uh, Anshu Sharma. So he's a former executive from Salesforce and uh, also Oracle. So at Salesforce, uh, you know, he's, he was there for a long time as a VP of product. So clearly they're dealing with a lot of, um, you know, sensitive information there. And it was something that throughout his career, he kept encountering this problem. And I think as somebody who really has deep understanding of like the SaaS space, he understood that mul multiple companies are essentially trying to like solve this problem all the time. And it's like, why is that such a hard problem? And he built some products within within Salesforce to try to address this, but it was something that had been sort of, you know, in the back of his mind for a long time. And he went on to be an investor um, for a number of years and start a couple other companies, but he had kind of been noodling on this problem for like eight years. And they actually, there was an original like prototype of Skyflow built like long before the company had actually even started with where they were really starting to experiment or like, like how, do, how do you kind of solve this problem? And I think some of the key insights that led to the foundation of Skyflow was recognizing that some other companies uh, like Google, Netflix, um, Apple, Capital One, Goldman Sachs, and a handful of others had sort of independently come up with uh, this concept of what we call a data privacy vault. And essentially their key insight was that they recognized that like, hey, their customer data is something that's like really special. It's different than regular data. You know, it's not the same as a click on a website when you're storing someone's like social security number. So it needs to be treated special and essentially their customer data, which is core of their business, shouldn't be stored like all other application data because that's when you run into these like PII sprawl problems where it ends up like replicated everywhere. So what they did was they moved their customer data or subset of it into these zero trust PII data privacy vaults, which becomes this like single source of truth of the customer data that's isolated and protected outside of their existing systems. And essentially it descopes their existing systems from responsibilities of data privacy, security, compliance, and so on. It's kind of like, you know, you can have a lock on your door in your house, 
but then you put your really sensitive stuff in like a safe in your home. So that way, if someone penetrates the, the, your, you know, the lock on your door, there's another additional level of security that they have to get through in order to actually get to the, like the, the, the crown jewels. And that's a similar idea behind this concept of a data privacy vault. So they had built these things internally. These are all companies that have, you know, very, you know, heavily resourced, lots of engineers. It's a heavy lift to build something like this. So just as a, uh, you know, point of reference, Shopify presented, they, they built something similar a few years ago and they presented this work at a, a privacy conference a couple of years ago. It took them three years and contributions from almost hundred engineers to build their version of a vault. And that was only for essentially an analytics use case, not necessarily solving all of these different challenges. So that was the inspiration for Skyflow and where it started. And then we spent essentially a couple of years just in R&D and we took that concept of a data privacy vault and then essentially took it to market as a simple API that anyone can use. And so with Skyflow, is it a service that you manage everything or is it sort of like the vault runs within the customer's environment so then they can easily access data and it's all sort of controlled within their infrastructure? Yeah, so, it, <laughs> so there's a couple of different deployment models. It is SaaS-based model, but not SaaS in the sense that like Salesforce is SaaS, more like the way uh, Snowflake SaaS or something, where okay. essentially... We, we provide uh, ma like uh, management in some capacity, but the data is yours. And then there's a couple of different deployment models essentially of how that data uh, is either deployed within your cloud environment, within via you know, single tenant VPC or multi-tenant environment, depending on what uh, your requirements are in these cases. And you can, we'll also do encryption key management for you, but you can also bring your own encryption keys and manage that process yourself, which um, for certain types of, businesses that can make sense. So I guess the question that I have is, you know, the kinds of data that, at least some of the kinds of data that people would want to put in this vault are the same pieces of data I would want to put in something like Salesforce. So mm -hmm. my question is, would this work with Salesforce? Does this compete with Salesforce? How does that work out? Yes, that's a great question. So. I wouldn't say we compete with Salesforce, certainly can work with Salesforce. So of course, like no system that you're building today is going to exist completely in isolation from any kind of third party, right? Like if you're doing payment processing, you're probably gonna use some sort of uh, payment uh, processing service, whether that's Stripe or Agent or something like that. So you're gonna have to pass credit card data over to there to issue the transaction. They'll take care of the you know, card networks and so forth. Same with if you want to send an email, most people aren't writing their own e email relay and doing all that. They're using SendGrid or some sort of API, or they want to send an, uh, a text message, you're using Twilio or InfoBip or Cinch or one of these types of companies. So some level of data needs to get to these third parties. and is But you can do that essentially all through the, the vault architecture. So the vault within your company is going to be your single source of truth of your customer data. But if you need to share some subset of that data with third parties to generate a contact in HubSpot or to issue a transaction in a credit card, you can securely share that data with the third party using Skyflow essentially as your proxy service to that third party. So what you do, what you get when you bring data into the vault is we exchange it and we give you essentially tokens, or you can think of them like pointers or references to the original values. It's de-identified data. So it's not even like an encrypted 
piece of information because there's no way to reverse engineer it back to the original value. It's essentially a random string. You can think of it like that. But so you can store those within your database and you can exchange them for the original values when you need to, I don't know, like render someone's first name on, the, on a website. But if you need to share the data with a third party, you're essentially calling the Skyflow APIs with the subset of tokens that represent the data that you need to pass to that third party service. So for email, that's going to be probably someone's name and their email address. And then you write your body as, as you normally would, but you'd be calling Skyflow with that information. The vault knows how to securely detokenize that information into the original values within the essentially secure vault environment and then call your third party service uh, with the subset of values. That's I so I like this approach because you're sort of centralizing everything rather than sort of going back to that example you gave with like 8,000 databases around the world. Right now, it's all sort of centralized, especially the core important data, right? And I think it helps from an engineering and from a product perspective, actually figuring out, okay, what is really personal data and what isn't, what needs to be protected in this fashion and having that conversation up front rather than building something and at the very end being like, hey, now we got to start thinking about personal data and what happened. So I think this approach totally makes sense and will help a lot of companies sort of centralize this. The other question I had is now that you have all the data centralized, do you help in terms of dealing with some of the regulatory obligations like data subject access requests, data subject deletion requests, because you have all the data in one place? Because I'm sure that that can also be very burdensome for some companies being like, how do I even handle a DSARD or yeah. a deletion request, right? Exactly. So, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, essentially by creating a single source of truth, like one of the challenge, central challenges that companies usually face is when, is to try, when they start trying to get a handle of this problem is like, you just ask a basic question of like, what and where are you storing information? And they can't really answer that question. Like the FTC last year requested that Facebook uh, share where they're storing essentially user data. They shared a list of, I think, 57 databases where they think user data is. So they don't even really know. And the former head of security at Twitter last year came out saying like, Twitter has no idea where your data is. So this is like a fundamental problem. So just by essentially bringing that into the vault, you're making like an architectural choice to say like, here's where that data lives. And you can, as the vault in terms of how you like design it and interact with it, it feels very much like a database. You can essentially create your own schema, your own tables. There's a lot going on underneath, but we try to create essentially an interface that feels like a database. So it feels familiar. And there essentially, if you need to know what you're storing, well, you can look at the schema of the vault to understand what you're storing and where is it stored while it's in the vault. So then when it comes to something like a DSAR, you know where to go in order to get that data. In terms of deletion, now in those 8,000 databases that typically would have had information about your users all over the place, you're storing essentially de-identified references to the original data. So when you delete the original data, now those references are meaningless. It's like, essentially, mm -hmm. you're essentially- you forgot about the person. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so you can go clean those up later, but essentially those tokenized values carry no sensitive data. So you're completely fine as well there. And then one other thing I want to mention though is, so typically if you're an international business, you're not going to have just one vault because you're going to run into data localization requirements in certain countries like Germany and Singapore and so forth. So in those cases, a lot of times you might end up with essentially vaults deployed within those specific regions so that you comply with data residency laws around the world. But it significantly simplifies data residency, both from like a expense and operational complexity standpoint, because 
today, like how most companies are trying to address that is they're basically like cloning their entire data centers and redeploying that into a new region and then sharding their customers based on those places. It's like a crazy thing to do. Um, like the, the amount of, ex it's hard enough to run one data center well to run like 10 simultaneously in different countries is, is both expensive and very operationally complex. So with using the vault, you're basically just taking the piece of data that needs to live in those countries and putting it there. And then your central center system can just operate over the tokens essentially. So you, you gave me an example of like, you know, like a credit card transaction like Stripe. And I'm, I'm sure there are hundreds or, you know, Shopify is another example of that. that anything mm -hmm. where you need the actual customer's name and address, right? You can't tokenize it, otherwise it's worthless. Um, I'm trying to figure out how this would work with a CRM um, because it would seem that you would want the real stuff. Otherwise that CRM would be kind of worthless. Um, so, so I'm curious as to how is, is right. to that question. Yeah. Some data from your users are going to go, would like most likely still go into like your Salesforce. Uh, mm -hmm. It doesn't need to be all your user data. Of course, uh, you're not going to probably store healthcare information, social security numbers, things like that in your, mm -hmm. um, in your CRM, but you're probably gonna have name and email and maybe other contact information in there, but that uh, doesn't need to live within your infrastructure. It's in basically living within your Salesforce infrastructure, some subset of your user data. Now, ideally, of course, Salesforce would be using Skyflow technology and be protecting that data within a vault there. And maybe we'll get to there because a lot of our leadership team <laughs> is also like Salesforce. So, but um, the, uh, but of course, like, you, like I was saying, like, no modern business lives completely in a silo. Some, even though it's less than ideal, some part of your data is going to get essentially transferred. So that does make things like your deletion requests slightly more difficult because you're, you're still going to have to go to your third party. So whenever you're dealing with these uh, compliance um, challenges, it's, it's not, you both, essentially Skyflow can help you make your, sure your infrastructure is essentially de-scoped from uh, the compliance regulations. But then you still need to make sure that any third-party systems you're using, whether it's your email relay or whatever, is also going to be compliant. So if you're dealing with like healthcare data, any third-party service that's touching any of that data also needs to be HIPAA compliant. So right. I think a lot of times people um, get a little confused about that. They'll have like MongoDB, which is, I think, HIPAA compliant. And they think like, okay, we're in the clear. But that just means that the data with, that lives within Mongo is HIPAA compliant doesn't mean that everything that touches it is essentially um, HIPAA compliant. So you need to be looking at this at a much more holistic level. So it sounds like you don't yet, although maybe you dream in the future of a world where you could have essentially a plug-in into Salesforce where Salesforce is simply receiving and sending data via your vault. You don't have that yeah. today, but but you it sounds like you hope that maybe you could have that in the future. Yeah, exactly. So there are... Um, you know, existing like partnerships and integrations that with not necessarily with Salesforce, but with other types of systems where you're passing things to third parties that we are, you know, some are announced, some are in the works that allow to allow you to essentially continue to be use your vault as a single source of truth. But then those third parties are also essentially making the API calls directly into your vault to access that information, so, which then it also it's their best interest too, because they're not having to deal with all these problems as well. They're essentially descoping their systems. They can just focus their engineering resources on whatever their core product is. Yeah. 
build a product, not all this other infrastructure. Exactly. Like yeah. for some reason, we're we've gotten used to not building our own payment systems, not building our e own email systems, or even you know building our own like SIP servers to connect to carriers to send text messages. But when it comes to privacy, we're like, oh no problem, I'll just DIY that <laughs> over the weekend. We'll be good. Like that. It's like I, for some reason we need to get out of that mindset that we can solve this ourselves because your whatever bespoke system that you're going to come up with is just going to end up causing a lot of problems down the road. Yeah. So I had two questions for you, Sean. So the first is, I know you mentioned for the vault that it's, think of it like a database. Do you guys currently, or have you heard customer ask to be able to store other types of objects, like rather than just treat it like a database, sort of becoming a central store for like object information or even biometric pictures or other things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So we, you can store files, binaries already within the vault. Essentially, okay. you would end up creating like a, uh, a table field for like files, but then that can be an object store. And there's no limits in terms of the size of the data really that you're storing in there. So we have lots of people that, you know, they're collecting passport images, driver's license numbers, uh, or driver's license pictures, uh, biometric data, that kind of stuff um, that they want to use the, the vault for storing that kind of information as well. And clearly, okay. like that stuff's like super, super sensitive. So exactly. it's not something yeah. you just want to throw in <laughs> S3 bucket and manage yourself. Yeah. And then the second question I had, and given that it is the backup central, are you going to take my question? Is are you going to take my question? Okay, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead, Curtis. That was a question I was waiting to ask. How do you back this stuff yep. up? This really important, yep. this really important vault. <laughs> how do we make sure it doesn't just go poof? Yeah. So clearly, like we're, you know, I, I, um, I didn't build the system, so I'll do my best to answer this question. But we, we have very deep expertise in this space. Uh, you know, before we even hired a single sales or marketing person within Skyflow, we were probably 50 engineers deep just that solely work on this. Like we have one person that their entire life is uh, on the engineering team is to wake up in the morning and think about encryption key management. And there's very few companies in the world that probably have a person that only purpose in life is to think about like, how do I make sure the data is secure? Am I rotating the keys? Am I, you know, uh, all the best practices around that. And that's same thing true when it comes to, to our backups. So we're following, it's all cloud-based. So we're following all the best practices around backups. We recently actually were um, accepted into AWS's uh, partner network. So we, in order to qualify for that, you have to pass their, um, their uh, technical review where essentially their solutions architects go through your entire architecture with a fine tooth comb to make sure that you're following all the security best practices recommended by AWS. So, and then of course, we're also past thir various third-party uh, security um, checks like SOC 2, uh, we're PCI compliant level one and so forth. So all those things also require third-party auditors to be looking at your systems to make sure that you're following all the best practices. So I guess, but restating Curtis's question just slightly, is so is it something that's built into your offering so you guys automatically deal with protecting the database and backing it up and everything else or is it something that the customer has to sort of kind of like in the old days right with databases it's like you put it in hot backup mode you dump the files and then you copy it off somewhere else right and, so yeah and yeah that's a great question so we just to tag on to that what i see a lot of vendors like yourselves doing is they back up like the service which may include customer data but they don't really build in to the service the ability to restore. I just, I don't necessarily, for example, I'll just give you an example, OneDrive, yeah. right? OneDrive has some backups, 
But if you need to restore those backups, you, it's an all or nothing. You have to pick a day and you right. have to restore yeah. your entire OneDrive account, including all of its users, right? So yeah. they, 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 they don't think about the restore part. So I am curious, and you don't necessarily have to answer it here, but I am curious, but it sounds like the attitude is that you are saying that you're responsible for protecting the customer's data. Yeah, so we do, we do, uh, we handle all the backups and then you can, we do incremental as well as full backups. And essentially we, and we also only hang on to the backups for a certain amount of time to be compliant with whatever, uh, I forget the exact time amount of time that you, you can hang on to them, but that allows you to be compliant. If you need to delete the data, for example, then the, the backup that has the data will disappear after a certain period of time. But we also proactively test like restoration process as well, because like we're clearly dealing with super sensitive data and we need to be able to in, in, we always have to be thinking about, especially when it comes to data breaches or any kind of malicious activity, you have to assume that someone is going to be able to get in if they're determined enough. And you need to be looking at what would be the impact in the worst case scenario of someone getting in. So that's something that essentially you need to be looking, we run like pre, basically pre-mortems of if someone gets to hear what happens. And uh, essentially all of that is led by our, our security and privacy team. Our head of security and privacy um, is uh, uh, has over 50 patents in, in database security, he basically invented most of the things that we use in modern encryption, uh, modern database um, uh, security today. So they essentially, they, they are the ones that, that are the, the guardians of the data, so to speak. Sean? You had Curtis when you said that you guys do restore testing. Honestly, like I think after that, he was like, oh, my God. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I don't want to do it now, but I, I am curious, maybe, you know, maybe on a different call. Uh, I am curious to, to sort of double click on that uh, to, to learn more about that, because so many SaaS services, they they don't see the backup and restore of their customer data as their responsibility. Right. This is true for Microsoft, for Google, for Salesforce. Right. Salesforce at least is finally now offering a service that you can pay extra for. But prior mm -hmm. to that, uh, you know, there wasn't an option. And so um, it, it's good to hear that it sounds like you're you're thinking the right things. I am curious to know to, to sort of drill down on that, what it would be like for a customer if a customer's. If, if an individual customer's data was somehow breached or damaged or whatever, uh, mm -hmm. some stupid admin deletes half the records, um, you know, whatever. Um, anyway, well, listen, uh, you know, th this has been a great conversation. Uh, I, I, at least now, I at least understand what you mean when you say privacy as a service, because um, I, I definitely did not in the beginning. So I, I, I think you've done a, I think you've done your company a good service there, Sean. Oh, thank you. That's great. As someone who uh, champions themselves as an engineer that can tell stories, I hopefully I'm able to tell the story <laughs> of what we actually do uh, succinctly I, enough. I think you did all right there. Brasana, I'm still not sure if I'm going to forgive you for, you know, not being fully there for me this morning, you know, earlier today, but. Chat GPT, Curtis, chat GPT. Chat GPT. Chat GPT is either going to like solve the world or destroy us, one or the other. <laughs> Yeah. If you ask ChatGPT, you're definitely going to get an answer. Now, whether that answer is accurate or not is a different question. I recently asked uh, um, ChatGPT, who is Sean Faulkner, and uh, it gave me an answer. I would say 95% of it was made up. I apparently founded some companies I've never heard of. Uh, I had a job at Google. 
that I never had and worked on products there that I never worked on and so forth. So nice. Definitely give you an nice. Um, yeah, I, I, I chat GPT myself as well. Um, yeah. And most of it was actually, it was actually pretty decent, but, um, yeah, it's just when it starts doing things like writing code, that's, it's like, it's just super impressive, right? Uh, not perfect, but impressive. But, uh, anyway, so I will say, uh, thanks to our listeners and, uh, be sure to subscribe so that you can restore it all. It'll be complete.